Well, we're going to be in Deuteronomy 6 today, and we're going to do a shorter teaching, right? Next week, we'll be back into our normal uh, teaching schedule and cycle in Deuteronomy. But I did want to get back into Deuteronomy because I think that Deuteronomy 6 is going to be very, very helpful for us. But in order to do so, I need some help. So all the kids in the audience, I need you to stand up right where you're at. All the kids in the audience, stand up. There we go. Okay. I need some help from you guys. Okay. I want to know, raise your hand, if you know what the greatest command in your house is. Raise your hand if you know what it is. Okay, a few of you, good. Okay, tell me by either nodding your head yes or shaking your head no. Is it to always pick your socks up off the floor? No? Okay. Is it to always say, I love you, as you leave the house? No? Parents, do you think that if your children were to ask you what the most important command in your house was, would you be able to answer them? Kids, do you think your parents would be able to answer that? Yes or no? Yes? No? No? You don't think so? A few of you? Yes? Okay, we've got some mixed reviews from the audience, folks. All right, kiddos, you can sit on down. I'll need you in a second, but good job. The one thing that, barring all else, needs to be done in your house is your greatest command. And I wonder if any of us know what the greatest command in our house is. I think we as parents often speak those to our kids unknowingly. But today I want to take a look at the greatest command upon which the household of God is built. And therefore, all the households that bear his name as Christians should also be built. And this command is known as the Great Shema. Can you say the Great Shema? It comes from the first word of a section of scripture here in Deuteronomy that begins with the word here. The word here in Hebrew is Shema. This is what the Hebrew looks like. Can you look up there at the screen? Now, who would love to learn a quick amount of Hebrew really quick? All right, a few of you. Good. All right. Repeat after me. Shema Yisrael. Very good. So you've got the roll of the tongue and everything else. All right, let's do this. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ichad. What you just said is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, let's keep going. You want to keep going? Va'ahavta. That's a tough one, isn't it? Et Adonai, Eloecha, Bachol Levevcha, Uvhol Nafshika, Uvhol Miodecha. You guys just spoke Hebrew. You just said the great Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might or strength. Okay? That's what this says. And so we call it the Great Shema because we get, get it from the first word, Shema, here. Next week, we'll delve into chapter 6 in greater depth, and I want to take the idea of the Great Shema and see why it plays into our mission statement and vision as a church, to make disciples of Jesus by teaching, equipping, and sending. We get it very much from the Great Shema. But this week, as we gather together as a family with our oldest and youngest members, I want to take some time to get the Great Shema into our head and hearts as much as possible. And what better way to end 2018 and to step into 2019 with the greatest command at the core of what we're looking at. And to begin this morning, I want to read it in context, and then we're going to start with a video from the Bible Project, the very same people who provide the reading plan I recommended earlier. And what I'm going to show you is the beginning of a video series called the Shema series. I would highly recommend, especially you parents, spending time as families going through that series and learning what the various words mean. In them, I'm going to take a little bit of an overview of what they say, but you can go deeper in the videos as you sit with your family, and you'll see very much what I'm saying is in them as well. 
So let's begin by looking at Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9. We're just going to read it in context, and then we'll watch a short video. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel. What do you think that word in Hebrew is here? Shema. There you go, okay? Now you know what's behind it. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, what's that word in Hebrew? Shema. Shema, O Yisrael. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so we see that this command is massively important. It is the foundation piece for all that we are about to learn as we go through Deuteronomy. Without understanding this piece of loving the Lord your God with everything that you are, adding these other things that we are supposed to follow as commands make no sense. And so just to get our minds a little bit structured around this idea of the great Shema, I want to just step into a quick video so everybody can look up at the screen and just follow along with me here. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Now the first word of the Shema is hear or listen, which in Hebrew is pronounced Shema. That's where the prayer gets its name. Now Shema is a really common word in the Hebrew Bible, and it's obvious why. Hearing is a very universal activity. It's usually connected with the ear, as in Proverbs chapter 20, ears that Shema and eyes that see, the Lord has made them both. Now that seems basic enough, but if you look at the other ways that Hebrew authors can use the word Shema, they use it to mean more than just let sound waves enter your ear. In Hebrew, Shema can also mean pay attention to or focus on. So when Leah, who wasn't loved by her husband Jacob, she has a son and she names him Simon, or in Hebrew, Shimon, because she says, the Lord has Shamad, that I am unloved. So Shema means to hear and to pay attention to, and even more. It can also mean responding to what you hear. This is why so many of the cries for help in the book of Psalms begin with a call that God listen. Psalm 27, verse 7. Shema my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful. Answer me. So asking God to Shema is at the same time asking God to act, to do something. It's similar to when God asks people to listen. Like when the people of Israel come to Mount Sinai, God says, If you Shema me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Now, there's a couple interesting things about this verse in Exodus. In Hebrew, the word Shema is repeated twice in this sentence to give it emphasis. If you Shema Shema, meaning listen closely. But also notice that from God's point of view, listening is basically the same as keeping the covenant. So when God asks the people to Shema, what he means is that they listen and obey. 
And that's the last fascinating thing about Shema. In ancient Hebrew, there is no separate word for obey, meaning to carry out the wishes of someone who knows better than you or is in authority over you. So in the Bible, if you want to say, I will listen and do what you say, you use the single word Shema. In Hebrew, listening and doing are two sides of the same coin. This is why later in Israel's history, when the people were breaking their covenant promises to God, the Hebrew prophets would say things like, they have ears, but they're not listening. The Israelites, of course, could hear just fine, but they weren't actually listening or else they would act differently. And so in the end, listening in the Bible is about giving respect to the one speaking to you and doing what they say. Real listening takes effort and action, and that's the Hebrew word Shema. Now, kiddos, I need you to help me remember this. So can you stand back up? All right. I need some help. And any of you who want to play along the children at heart in the the crowd, you can as well. Okay? First thing that we need to do is we need to listen, right? So everybody show me what listening looks like. Go ahead. Come on, parents. You're not too cool for this. Come on, Seth. Yeah, Seth, you're not too cool for this. Listen or hear, O Israel. Okay? The Lord... But give me the Lord, right? He's up there. The Lord is one. Okay? And we shall love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul or mind, with all of our might or strength. Okay? Now, what I'm going to teach you today is that that's a really good way to remember all the words, but what it really means, what the great Shema means is one thing. So do this with me. We shall love the Lord our God with all that we are and all that we have. That's what it means. I will love the Lord my God with my everything. That's what the great Shema means. Okay, good job. You can sit back down. The first part of this that I want you to understand is, you can write this down. A disciple of Jesus loves the Lord above all else. Above all else. Now, why do I begin with the idea of a disciple of Jesus? Because technically, this is in Deuteronomy, Jesus had not come yet. So why are we talking about disciples of Jesus? This is in the Old Testament, right? Well, that's right, but the core and foundation of all that Jesus taught is this same great command. Tyler just read to us from the Gospel of Mark when Christ quotes from this very passage to tell the scribe what the greatest commandment is. And he says it sums up all other commands. Look with me at Matthew 23, 36 through 40. It says that someone came to him and said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's interesting. Remember that for later. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. When asked to sum up all that he teaches and all that he pulls from in the law of the Old Testament, this is where Jesus turns. So do you think it's important for us if we want to be people who obey, not only listen on a Sunday, but obey the commands of Christ, that we would know this? Do you think that's important? Yeah, absolutely. We need to focus on this command. And if this command is all that we know, the natural outflow will be to follow the rest of the commands of the Lord. And who is it that we are to love above all else? Well, it's not some ambiguous deity. A few weeks ago, we talked about the difference between the title God and the name of the God of the Bible, who is Yahweh, okay? 
And he came as Jesus Christ. And this God is a God that has a name that is known and is, has a personhood. He's not just some ambiguous God far out that we think we serve. He's one who we're in relationship with. And the statement that he is one means that he is one we worship above all else. We give value to above all else. We have one Lord and one King. Now it's hard for us as American Christians to have any King at all because we come from a people who fought a king and said, we don't want a king to rule over us. But the reality is, is we have one Lord and one king, and to love him means that we value and worship him above all else. So quick quiz time, get ready. Are you ready to answer some questions here? Does that mean we love the Lord above all but the rest of our family? Does it mean that we love the Lord more than everything but our hobbies? Does it mean that we love the Lord more than everything but our toys? Does it mean that we love the Lord more than everything but our jobs and money? No, we love the Lord above all else. All other pursuits and desires, all other relationships, even our spouses, our children, above all other things, all other experiences, all other emotions, love the Lord your God above all else. And what does it mean that we're to love him? Well, they did such a great job in that video. Love is very much attached to the word Shema. To love is not just a feeling, right? How many of you have ever said, I love someone in my family? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you used the same word to say, I love pizza? Raise your hand. Okay. It doesn't really do the same thing. I really like pizza, but I really love my wife a lot more than pizza. I could give up pizza anytime. I could not give up hanging out with my wife or my kids. And so love actually has some connotation to it other than what we think of, of just our affections, that I have a positive idea towards that. You know, someone might say, I love Jesus. Well, usually what they mean is, is I think Jesus is a pretty cool dude. Well, guys, in reality, who doesn't think Jesus is a pretty cool dude? Even atheists, non-believers say, yeah, that guy's teachings were pretty cool, right? He's a pretty nice guy. I kind of like his style, you know, the sandals and the toga. It's a cool deal, Right? We love Jesus with positive affection, but it's more than that. It's actions. And the Shema means to hear, but not just to listen. We very much in the Western Christian world, this is what we view Christianity as. Hey, are you a Christian? Yeah. How do you know? I go to church and listen to a guy talk for a while. What about the rest of your life? Really, this is just two hours on a Sunday. Today, it'll probably be about an hour and a half. What do we do with the rest of our life? Do we act in a way that shows we love Jesus above all else? To love him is to put into action what we hear. And so this means that if we love someone, we won't just listen to them, we'll act upon it. Wives or husbands, how how many times does this happen in your marriage where after 10 years you've said the same thing to your spouse and yet they've still not acted on it? Does that make you feel loved and valued? No. Many of you are not laughing right now because this hits at a very deep-seated thing in your marriage. We constantly communicate to each other, but do we act on those things? To love our kids is to listen to them and to respond to their needs. To love our spouses is to listen to them and respond to their needs. Kids, to love your parents is to do what? To listen to them and then do what with it? To obey. When we say to our kids, obey right away, another, another, way we're, another thing that we're saying is, can you please show that you love me by listening and obeying? And so if we're in covenant relationship with Yahweh, who's the source of love and always acts only out of his holy love, 
then we're going to naturally have an outflow of response to his love, which will be his character flowing through us. We love Yahweh above all else, and we do so by acting in a way in which his love flows through us to others. And the great Shema gives us three specific ways that we're supposed to love. But I think what you'll see as we read through them is that the author was simply writing down a way of showing us in three different ways the same thing, that we are to love God with our everything. First, you can write this down. A disciple of Jesus loves the Lord with all their heart. A disciple of Jesus loves the Lord with all their heart. Again, it's easy for us to make this about our affections. If we have positive opinion of God or emotion toward him, we think, oh, I'm loving him. But the Hebrew word here means more than the affection of our heart. To the Hebrews, the heart was the core of everything. If you look even further past in literature of the Middle East, they would talk about their gut, their innards, that you would feel things in your gut. And so, man, when you would say, I love someone, you wouldn't say, oh, my heart just longs for them. You'd say, my bowels long for them. Really romantic, right? Ladies, I'm sure you want to hear that. Honey, my bowels are just aching for you. Now, that's not really what, it work, what works, right? But the heart for the Hebrews was the center of everything. It was not only the center of physical nature. that If your heart died, the rest of you died. They knew that. But it was also your mentality, your wisdom came from your heart, as well as your senses, your emotions, and your desires, your longings. And it's from this background that we get the idea of a broken heart. If you say, man, I'm hurting because of a loss or I'm hurting because of a broken relationship, we all intuitively know that it's talking about, the person's talking about emotions and their thought process and maybe even feelings in their body. But we use the word heart because we know it's at the core of our sorrow. And to love the Lord with all your heart means to place service to Yahweh and the effort to reflect him to the people around us above everything and to be at the core of all that we do. And so in both the Old Testament and the New, to love the Lord with all your heart is to learn and follow his commands so that they flow out of the core of your being. To do so is to give your whole life to Christ. That's why we as Christians say, I gave my life to Jesus. That's why Jesus could easily say, pick up your cross and follow me. You have to give all to be my disciple. We see this not only in the Old Testament, but in the New. Look here at Deuteronomy 10. We'll be there probably in another month or so. It says, and now you laugh, come on, I'm moving quick through Deuteronomy. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Jesus says something very, very similar in John 14, 15, just more succinct. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, this reality of loving the Lord with our heart is not just an affection. It's not just a, hey, do you love Jesus? Yeah, I love Jesus. It's a, no, I love Jesus so much that I'm willing to put my life on the line to follow him. I'm willing to be purposeful in action to serve him. So it's not just our affections, uh, but heart captures all that we are, physical, emotional, mental, and all of our affections. And really, guys, it's this. You can write this down. To love the Lord with our heart is to love the Lord our God with our everything with our everything. I love the Lord our God with our everything. Well, next we see that a disciple of Jesus loves the Lord with all their soul, 
Our typical Western definition of soul is our mind and emotions. We think of it as kind of this ghost that sits inside this physical body. And then when we die in this physical body, this ghost leaves us. But that's very Greco-Roman. That's not actually what the Hebrews believed. The word in Hebrew is nefesh. And it can be translated as strength or as neck or as throat. Interesting to have that much word play, right? The reality is, is that it can be called the throat because the throat is where we breathe our breath. It's where life comes into our body. And so when we talk about our nefesh being dried up or being broken, we're speaking not only about our neck or our throat, we're talking about our whole life. Look at Numbers eleven six, where it says this, but now our strength, and that word in the Hebrew is nefesh, our life strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but manna to look at. It's not just their throats are dried up. I'm sure that was the case too in the desert, but their entire strength of life. It's the breath of life given by God. When we are loving the Lord with our nefesh, it means we know that we are nothing if not connected to the source of life. It means we know that God is our breath when we wake up in the morning and he is the one that gives us sleep when we lay down that we are literally nothing. It's not like we can be this electric car that plugs in when we're first born and then we move on for the rest of our life, draining the batteries slowly but surely. We literally have to stay plugged into the wall. I'm sorry, folks, you're not cordless. You need to be connected to the source of life. And every one of us has to give all of ourselves to the Lord because he's the one that's given us all of our life, all of our energy. So it's not just our mind and emotions. It captures the very core of our being, our very reason for living. And so to love the Lord with our soul is truly to love the Lord with our everything. Well, then we see a disciple of Jesus loves the Lord with all their might, with all their might. The final word used here is that we must love the Lord with all of our me'od. Everybody say me'od. Me'od is an interesting word. Here it's translated might. Now it's very interesting because this word is translated differently and it's used a ton. You may have noticed in our earlier reading from Matthew, it's translated not as might, but as mind. Has that ever bothered anyone who's OCD like me? In the Old Testament, they say might or strength, and then Jesus comes along and says mind. Has anyone else been bothered by that? Okay, Anna, you and me, we're the only OCD ones in the room. It's okay. But the reality is, is it's translated differently because there's movement in that word. In the reading from Mark, it's translated as mind and strength. One word, mind and strength. Interestingly enough, in the Aramaic, the rabbis would speak it in synagogue and guess what they would translate it as? They would translate it as money. Well, which is it? Well, the most wide usage of the word me'od is to be used as an adjective, a word that means very or much. If you want to say very good, you'd say tov me'od. Everybody say, I'm tov me'od. I'm very good, right? Me'od, very. Tov, good. I'm very good. And so when reading this in a literal to English translation, a very wooden translation, you would almost say, "I, I need to love Jesus with my very. You're very what? You're very everything. They put it well in the video that you can go and watch on the word me'od. I need to love Jesus with my muchness, with everything about me, my very essence of being. 
When the writers of the Bible want to really intensify something, they would use the word me'od twice. For example, here in Genesis 17.6, it says, I will make you exceedingly, and in the Hebrew, that's me'od, me'od, fruitful. And I will make you into, into nations and kings shall come from you. And so this word is very or much, it's, it's an exponential increase. And so it's almost as if when Moses was writing this and when God spoke it to Moses, that he was saying, okay, heart and soul, and then just in case I didn't cover all the things you're thinking of, uh, you're everything. You're very, you're muchness. Literally everything of our lives is the Lord. To love the Lord our God with our heart, with our soul, and with our might is to love the Lord with our everything. And so, dear brothers and sisters, if we were to sum up what this greatest commandment means, in the core of its being, it would mean this. To love the Lord our God is to love him with our everything, and there is nothing less. You might say, well, Hans, that sounds like a whole lot. Wait a minute. So you're saying to love the Lord, I need to sell everything I have, get rid of all my possessions, go live in the Middle East as a desert dweller and proclaim the gospel because that's giving my everything. No, that's not actually what it means. How many of you as parents say to your kids, in order to love me, you need to run away from me to the desert, give up everything I've given you, and then stay there and suffer? Is that what you do as parents? If you do, we probably need to talk afterwards about some family counseling, right? No, as parents, what do we do? We say, I want you to steward what I've given you, and I want you to be in relationship, and I want you to be loved, and I want you to be provided for and cared for. The Father God is no different. And so to say that we love the Lord with our everything, I think often as very rigid Americans, we say we either have to give up everything or take everything for ourselves. And so we get stuck in this weird false dichotomy. But what we need to know is that we are to realize that all that we are and all that we will be is due to the everlasting love of our Father God. You see, you can't understand this commandment unless you first understand the love that was given to us. You see, to conjure up love in our dark and broken hearts as humans, it's not going to happen unless we first understand and are given the love of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And so the love of our Father God is that he loved us so much, he not only gave us nephesh, he gave us soul and spirit, gave us breath. But even when we turned our back on him, he again came to give us new life, to give us a new being. And he did so through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross of Calvary. When he sent his son, he gave up the most important thing to him. He gave up his everything. In fact, the father became flesh in the son and gave up his everything so that you and I would know that we are loved and desired back in relationship. Now, when he resurrected, proving that he had given everything and that it had satisfied our debt of sin, then he went to heaven, ascended, and was enthroned. And again, gave his very spirit, gave his everything to you and I to dwell within us as the church so that we might know his love. Our Father God has given us everything and in so doing, he showed us that he loved us long before we could even respond. And so to assist us in giving our lives to Jesus, in giving our everything, that Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit dwells within us as what the Bible calls the helper. Well, what does he help us to do? Not just to remember Bible scripture memory verses, that's a good thing, but also to actually live out the commands of Christ, to live out a life where we love the Lord with our everything. Brothers and sisters of Mission Fellowship, visitors, my prayer for us as we close out 2018 
and begin the calendar year of 2019 is that we would stop being a people, people who silo off portions of our lives for Jesus and silo off others for ourselves. It's so easy to give Jesus only our future after death, to give Jesus only a certain percentage of our income, to give Jesus only a certain percentage of our time. But I want to encourage you to begin thinking about it differently. You see, all of those understandings are based on an idea that our time, our money, our energy, our life is first ours, and we then get to apportion it to God. The reality is, is that everything we are, everything we have is God's and he's apportioned it to us so that we might steward it for his glory. Throughout my time in ministry, I've unfortunately heard it phrased this way. Hans, I know that I'm supposed to spend my time serving Jesus, but sometimes I just want to have some of my own time. Confession time. Raise your hand if you've ever found yourself thinking that or saying that. I'm guilty. Or I've heard it this way. I know I'm supposed to spend my money serving Jesus, but sometimes I just want to spoil myself. Confession time. Raise your hand if you ever thought that. Yeah, absolutely. But notice that these statements presuppose that to serve Jesus is to the detriment of what I want or what I think I need. For the follower of Christ, the deepest recesses of our desires will be satisfied when we follow Christ. We will find that doing what we want is shockingly also to satisfy the Father's will. And I think we need to think differently in order to understand this. What if we begin to think in a way that all of our time and all of our money and all of our relationships and all of our talents are really not ours at all? They are all gifts given by a good Father who calls us to be mindful and purposeful in how we use them. What if rather than portioning off 10% of our income and keeping the rest for, quote unquote, ourselves, we view all the money we've been given as a gift from God, some to spend on needs like food and shelter, some to spend on fun. Parents, do you like your children to have fun? Parents, do any of you like your children to have fun? Okay, man, we got to get the fun back in this place. Of course you do, right? You don't give your children money and teach them effectively by saying, never spend any of it ever, Scrooge McDuck. No, you say, hey, let's save some. Let's give some to the Lord and then let's use some. I find joy when my children steward their money well. Well, the Lord helps us to do the same thing. We don't just say, I can't spend any of it. I think the Lord loves it when husbands, we spend money on taking our wife out on a date. I think the Lord loves it when we spend money on helping our children learn how to steward their resources by buying a toy they want that's not extravagant, but that's good. And then we can take some of it and serve and give directly to the Lord's work through this church and other kingdom work. And that is balanced stewardship that the Lord asks of us. What if rather than portioning off two hours on a Sunday as the Lord's time, we realize that all of our time is his? And so it makes sense that we can give two hours to a gathering of his saints, two hours every other week to a community group where we work on what it is to love one another in this experiment called community group, and two hours every other week to a discipleship group. That still leaves, dear church, 164 hours a week to steward in other ways for Christ and his kingdom to sleep and rest, to love each other, to evangelize the lost, to develop relationships with people outside this church so we can evangelize, to clean our homes, 
to have a date night or a movie night or a family fun night, or simply to lay down and rest. All of these are for the purpose of serving the Lord. And all of them can be stewarded for his glory. So here's my twofold application for you as we finish up this morning. And again, don't get used to the speed of these teachings because next week we'll back in, back into the full hour. But here's my twofold application for you. First, I want to just suggest you do something very simple. You begin the year of 2019 by repeating the great Shema every morning to yourself. For Orthodox Jews, they do this to remind themselves that they are followers of Yahweh. And I think it's a great idea for us as Christians. Don't worry, we're not becoming a Messianic Jewish church that's going to start saying we have to, you know, live out the Torah. That's not, that's not the truth. And we'll talk about that as we go through. But this piece, Jesus said it still stands. And it is the core of everything we are. And so I want to just encourage you every morning, one simple prayer, to say the great Shema as you get up in the morning before your feet hit the floor. And secondly, my second point of application is this. I want you to sit down either by yourself or if you have roommates with them or if you have a spouse with them and maybe even your kids if they're old enough. And I want you to be purposeful in looking at the next year. Many of us, I think, as Christians, especially American Christians, we let life happen to us and we stand back at the end of the year with our heads spinning and we say, wow, what just happened? Anybody ever feel that way? I think many people feel that way in the midst of Christmas. We come away from our in-laws and we think, wait a minute, what just happened? The reality is, is that we have the job of stewardship. And I highly doubt when the Lord comes back and says, dear child, what did you do with the life I gave you? Well, Lord, I, I don't think this is going to work. Lord, I just kind of got away from me. You know, I just, I, I turned around and 60 years went by or 70 years or 80 years or 90 years and, and it was just gone. And, and I really tried really hard. I mean, I had good positive affection towards you the whole time, but you know, it just got away from me. When a master returns to his house, to the lead servant and says, how did you steward my household? What does he expect? He expects purposefulness. He expects focus and he expects that it's stewarded well. And so my second point of application is this. I want you to sit down and be purposeful and ask yourself or your family the question, in looking at 2019, are we stewarding it well? Are we planning on stewarding it well for the purpose of loving Christ and following his commands? Are we looking at 2019 and planning on stewarding it well for the purpose of loving Christ and following his commands? And here's some really basic questions you can ask to help you with that. Questions you can ask are, are we purposeful? Are we planning on being purposeful in individual and family devotion? Are we going to be purposeful in church and fa- church family relationships? Are we going to be purposeful in relationships outside of mission and making sure we're cultivating relationships with non-believers so that we can evangelize the lost and draw them into the church? Are we going to be purposeful in why we work and how much we work Church, you can hold me accountable to this. My leadership has been pressing me on this for seven years, that I need to be more purposeful in my relationship with my wife, my kids, and how much I work. This building project didn't help with that. I think I'm kind of in trouble with a few people on how much myself and other people in leadership worked on this. But I want to be purposeful in 2019, and you can pray for me in that, that I will be purposeful in why I work and how much I work, 
Not to build my own ego or my own ministry, but to serve Jesus and know that if the disciples in this room are doing well, but my primary disciples in my home of my wife and my children are suffering, then it doesn't do much good to come here and preach every Sunday. Are you being purposeful in that same respect? And lastly, are we going to be purposeful in rest and enjoyment of God's gifts? A dear church, there's something very simple you can do today. You can listen and respond. Many of you, I know, you'll leave this place and you will completely forget these application points. You'll completely forget these questions. And next week, when I come up here and say, hey, how did it go sitting down with your family? You'll go, oops. Plan to be purposeful. To be purposeful in loving the Lord, our God, with our everything. Church, if you make small adjustments in the time you have, in the time you spend, you make small adjustments in your giving and how you use your money, you make small adjustments in your relationships, you will notice your life moving in a new direction. Big changes happen because of small things. And so if we change one small direction and we continue on that course, all of you know that it leads to a big change. And hopefully that big change is that we are a church full of people that love the Lord our God with our everything. Do you want that to be the case for your life? Do you want to be people that are known as people that love the Lord our God with our everything? You first have to realize that this isn't saving you. This isn't earning the Lord's love. Salvation and the Lord's love has already been given. This is a proper response that we grow in each and every day. Let's be that church.